Welcome to the Learning Reinvented podcast brought to you by myself, Katie Godden, and the team at The Learning Effect. There are lots of learning podcasts out there, so we wanted to do something slightly different. This week, we'll be talking to someone who's taken up learn a learning career in a different part of the world. I'm delighted to welcome Jamie Dixon to the podcast. Jamie, do you want to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what you're currently up to? Sure, and thank you very much for having me, Katie. Um, so I I currently work in Shanghai in China, uh, currently undergoing the Shanghai lockdown as we speak. And I, I mostly do a lot of leadership development training and coaching with my clients here in China. My main focus at the moment is on uh, mostly helping Chinese people in international companies uh, influence their stakeholders. Um, and it's been a particularly big challenge over the last two years with the political fallout from the pandemic. Um, it's been it's been affecting people on the ground in these multinational companies that I work with. There's uh, uh, less trust than they had before. People don't understand the China market as well as before because people can't come into China. So I, I work with a lot of leaders um, to help them figure out how to influence uh, their stakeholders, especially their stakeholders overseas. Oh, that's great. So how did you end up in China? <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I graduated from university in a degree that I had zero interest in. Uh, it was environmental science. And I remember very clearly I graduated and I was working in a coffee shop. <laughs> And I thought, well, oh, this hasn't gone very well. Uh, three years at university, I'm working in a coffee shop. And um, one day I had a, an argument with my girlfriend at the time. And just in a, in, in a fit of pure disappointment about where my life was heading, I just suddenly decided, ah, oh, to hell with it. I'm going to leave the country. So I went back to my room and I submitted my CV to a website called TEFL.com, uh, teaching English as a foreign language, because I thought that would be a fairly easy way of uh, of going overseas and just trying something different. And well, long story short, um, three weeks later, I was in China. <laughs> uh, it turns out it was quite easy to find a job uh, teaching English. And that was kind of my, my entry into the world of learning and development because um, I, I taught English for two years. And on the side, I learned Mandarin in my spare time. And then after after I've been doing it for so long, I wanted to, to try and get into corporate and uh, I, I tried to apply for a job as a headhunter, um, trying to leverage my Mandarin skills to work for a recruitment company in Shanghai. And I didn't get any jobs working as a headhunter. However, one of the companies I applied to, uh, they had a job on file that suited me perfectly. Um, it was with Amway China. And they have a massive training institute in China because of the nature of their business. The government actually kicked them out of the country in 1998, but then later on said, if you want to do business here, you have to train all of the salespeople um, that you are recruiting. Um, for those of you who don't know Amway, it's a bit like Avon. Uh, and so Amway was like, okay, um, we will do everything you want. And they had a massive training budget, it was like 10 million US dollars a year at the time. And so they had a huge pool of training resources and the Southeast Asia affiliates had nothing. 
and they were looking to China and asking if if China could share some of their resources. So China needed someone who spoke Mandarin, but also spoke English and had a bit of experience in the classroom to help act as that cultural bridge. Um, and, and so that was my entry into the world of corporate learning and development and leadership uh, leadership development. Uh, I, I didn't know it existed before then, but as I was observing all of these trainings and following trainers around Southeast Asia, I thought, wow, this is really cool. Uh, I, I'm really interested in psychology. And I didn't realize this could be a job. Um, and so a few years after I started working at Amway, uh, I left and I joined a training company. And uh, from then on, I've been working as a coach and trainer. I worked for them for a few years and then set up my own business. And uh, yeah, so I've been doing this now for about uh, about 12 years in total. Wow, that sounds like you've had a really interesting um, career so far. What are the challenges that you face working in Shanghai in regards to kind of the cultural side of things and then how that impacts like L&D? There are there are several main challenges. Um, I think in in China, uh, one thing about the culture, in fact, that they're pretty much all about the culture. Probably the main thing is the the hierarchical nature of Chinese culture. Uh, it's very much a you know do what the leader says. Uh, don't don't be the uh, I think the saying is don't be the the bird that sticks its head out. So don't. Don't speak back, don't challenge people, just take orders. And they're very good at following orders, but it gives rise to a lot of bureaucracy. And you know, I, I'm sure anyone working in L&D anywhere in the world knows what bureaucratic L&D functions are like. They're very tick boxy. And um, unfortunately, you get quite a lot of that in my experience in China. Uh, that doesn't mean everyone is very passive. I, I meet a lot of L&D professionals who are really, really passionate um, and really want to make a difference, but they just feel completely held back because of this bureaucratic and hierarchical culture that they're working in. Uh, so that that's a big challenge. Another challenge is, I, I guess you could say it's it's people's experiences with with learning and, and training. Um, at school, uh, you, you know, a lot of people know what the Chinese education system is like. It's it's rote learning. It's sitting in a class at a table, listening to the teacher. The teacher is always right. And so people come to training with an expectation that it will be somewhat like that. And even the word they use to describe training, you know, whenever we're talking about training, we, we say the phrase jiang ke which literally translates translates as to speak a class. So there tends to be a big expectation for content and that's their understanding of training. Uh, again, you do get more sophisticated L&D who, who recognize that it's about facilitation and that's how real learning, you know, that, that's how you get the most out of training. Um, but there's still a lot of expectation that, you know, it's going to be content driven. And I'd say the final challenge is just that Chinese culture is, especially in these last few decades, it's just a ridiculously busy and fast paced culture and people are prone to distraction. Um, and to get, you know, to get people to commit to a set period of time to just focus on one thing is almost impossible. 
um, it doesn't matter what workshop you're doing, what coaching you're doing or whatever, um, people are likely to get distracted by all sorts of things that come up um, at a, just a moment's notice. Uh, and so it can be very, very difficult to, to manage those distractions. So there's quite a lot of challenges, um, but just to re-emphasize something I said earlier, there are a lot of passionate L&D people over here. I know quite a lot, um, but they're just, they're just really held back <laughs> by the conditions that they're working under. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of um, true to a lot of L&D teams. I, I think um, even in the UK that we see some of that as well. And um, what do you think the key differences between um, the UK and uh, China are in regards to learning? I think so. One massive difference that is really obvious when I whenever I get into a room with people, especially if I'm in a room with a group of a group of Westerners and a group of Chinese people, the Chinese are incredibly contextual in their thinking, whereas we Westerners, we tend to be a lot more conceptual. Um, we love to play mental gymnastics with concepts and talk at quite a high level and, and, and think in quite academic terms, actually. Um, and, you know, as an example, uh, I, I know you're trying to stand out as an L&D podcast, and I appreciate that because I've heard other L&D podcasts that always talk at a very high level about L&D needs to do this. And in China, that kind of uh, that kind of high level discussion just doesn't go down very well because it's not it's not contextualized. Uh, they like to focus on specific examples. Um, you know, you talk about L&D, uh, L&D need to do this, but they would prefer to focus on a specific L&D team and the specific challenge they're focusing on. And so in the room, when I'm with a group of people, you hear a lot of Westerners talking at quite high, high level things, and the Chinese are talking about real things, uh, real examples, and how this can be applied to that specific example. They're incredibly contextual in their thinking. Um, and, you know, this contextual versus conceptual thinking, there's pros and cons of, of each of those. In the West, I think, and I'm generalizing big time, but in the West, I, I think uh, our conceptual thinking makes us more analytical, uh, more creative, but not necessarily so practical. Uh, and the Chinese are maybe not as analytical or as creative, but they are incredibly practical people. And they're mostly concerned with just, here's a problem, how do I solve it? I don't care about the concept or the theory or all of the academic research that's been put into it. How do I solve this bloody problem? Um, that tends to be their, their thinking. I'd say that's probably the biggest difference that, that strikes me. So do you think that impacts um, how training's actually delivered out in China? So I know you mentioned that there are a lot of face-to-face -face and workshops and that's perhaps the preference, um, but what what is their thoughts on kind of uh, online training and that, that sort of content and how that's delivered? Is that more common or less common? Um, to be honest, it's been a massive frustration of mine trying to persuade clients to do things online. Um, th there are clients who do things online over here and they tend to be high tech companies who already have an established culture for doing things online. 
Um, or maybe it's a particular project where you know there's there's no other choice. You have to do it online because there's people all, all around the Asia Pacific region who can't travel. Um, but if it's if it's a China team, they want to do it face to face. Uh, and online, they're very. I, I just come up come, come up against so much resistance uh, with doing things online. And I think there are several reasons. Um, one, I, I think maybe maybe Chinese people just have a preference for for that close contact. Um, you know, we, we talk about guanxi a lot, the concept of relationships, and you know, maybe Chinese people just prefer that intimacy and close contact, uh, which is yeah, fair enough. Um, I think learning is a very human thing, and why not have you know why not do it through close contact? Another issue is just the busyness. Um, a really interesting concept is that it's harder to schedule people for 60 minutes than it is for a day. Um, <laughs> getting them into a classroom for a whole day is really easy. Getting them all to sign on to a virtual workshop for an hour at the same time <laughs> is so challenging. Um, maybe they just don't treat an hour with as much respect as they would treat a day uh, and leave things more open and so distractions come up. So that is a really big challenge. Um, and I, I think you know maybe this isn't so related to um, online offline, but I think Chinese Chinese people in general, if they're going to be engaged in the training, um, it, they have a problem and they want to find a solution and they're there to find that solution and that's why they're that's why they're joining this training they're not here to learn this methodology or they don't care if someone told them which uh, told them to go which i think is just a, a universal thing um but they have a problem they want to solve the problem how do i solve the problem okay i found how i solve the problem good i'm done <laughs> that, that that tends to be the mindset yeah I quite like that approach. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's like, that, that we we talk about a lot that the learning has to have a purpose, yes. um, and without that purpose, obviously, what is the point? Um, so I do kind of like their their way of thinking on that one. So I understand you've written uh, a couple of books. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Hmm. So, I I I, I was I wrote my first book. Um, I published it in 2019. It's called Shaping Paths, How to Design and Deliver Practical Training. And I was really inspired to write this book because of my experiences with Chinese people, um, training Chinese people and their expectations for the training to be practical. And I had worked with a lot of European and American training companies by that point. Um, and, you know, they give me their training materials and asked me to deliver those in China and I'd get into the room and I'd start delivering it and I get a little way and go ah, oh, to hell with it. <laughs> Throw away the materials and OK, let's focus on your problems and how do we solve these problems? Because the methodologies that people were using to design that training um, in, in Europe and the US, it just didn't resonate with people here in China. And I really wanted to understand how can I actually make training practical? It's a really uh, it's a really strong word that uh, that comes up a lot in China um, and in various translations as well, but it always comes back to practical. So how do I make training practical? And 
I read a lot of books on training at the time. And I remember in a lot of these books, I was learning how to make training engaging and you know how to tell stories and how to run activities and how to keep the energy high. I thought this is great, but don't we do training to change behavior? Why am I not reading about anything to do with behavior change? And so I, I had to you know, I had to go to different fields actually to understand how you know how we do behavior change. Uh, I looked to fields such as user experience design. Um, I remember I read a really interesting book called Seductive Interactive Design, um, and, and there were a lot of lessons from that about behavior change. I also uh, one of my favorite books is The Design of Everyday Things by Donald Norman, um, which is about the design of like mugs and teapots and chairs and doors. But the psychology that goes into it translates uh, into training as well. And I, I also came across uh, BJ Fogg's behavior uh, model, um, which had a massive inspiration on my thinking. And so from going to all of these different places, uh, I came up with my own methodology. And to put it quite simply, um, the idea is that people forget things. Um, it doesn't matter how engaging the training is, uh, how many stories we tell or how many activities we give them. They're still quite likely to forget what they learn in training. Um, and, and that's okay because in the modern world that we live in, we all know we don't depend on our memories to do important things. We depend on smartphones and iPads and computers and post-it notes to remind us we've outsourced our memory. So rather than depending on our learners remembering things, give them things to take away and use like tools. And I, you know, examples of tools are checklists, templates, processes, forms, and so on. And I, I think this is the most practical way of approaching training, of approaching the content aspect of training design. Because if you can condense all of your content into a tool that they can use when they are back at work solving problems, then you have dramatically increased the chance of them taking what they learn in the training and actually using it. Uh, and so that, that that's basically my methodology in, in short. Design tools and don't hope for them to remember. Give them a tool that they can take away uh, and use and you increase the chances significantly of them actually applying it back at work. That sounds really interesting and I think um, that helps people actually apply their training a lot easier um, than perhaps kind of having high level training and talking, you kind of mentioned it before as well, talking about kind of concepts and stuff and things that aren't necessarily going to be used straight away by them and and it is easy to forget that I think we've all sat through training and it might be relevant in the future to us but um, if you're not going to use it there and then it is so easy to forget that. Um, have you got any books coming up at all? <laughs> yes uh, and, and thank, you, <laughs> thank you for asking. Um, I'm about to publish a book called The Story Habit um, which is Obviously, it's about storytelling um, and how to tell stories, but much more importantly, it's about how to shape the stories that people believe in. Uh, and this is a big, a big thing for the work I do right now with the leaders I work with, helping them influence uh, their stakeholders. 
because the challenge they're facing is the stories their stakeholders believe in about China uh, and believing that, you know, there's all this intellectual property theft going on and, and the government is uh, is corrupt and oppressing human rights and, and so on. And, you know, some of it is somewhat true and some of it is is old and out of date and some of it is just not true whatsoever. Nonetheless, those are the stories they believe in. And so when the Chinese people that I work with over here go to influence their stakeholders overseas, uh, they meet a lot of pushback because of the stories people believe in. And so um, I've designed a methodology that uh, actually it works it works in exactly the same way for telling stories and for shaping stories. And it's actually a, a tool, like I just described, uh, a tool that I'm using in a lot of workshops at the moment. Uh, and the framework to describe it quite quickly, uh, it's called Relate, Challenge, Resolve, just three words. Um, and the idea is that in stories, a story always starts with a character in a situation the audience can relate to. And then the character meets a challenge and they have to overcome the challenge and eventually they find a way of overcoming it. And that's the resolution, the resolve part. And there's a lesson in the story for the audience to take away. And when it comes to influencing people and shaping the stories people believe in, it works in exactly the same way. You have to start by relating to the stories they believe in. If you start by challenging the stories they believe in, they will reject you. But if you start with relating, and then once you've related enough, then go into challenging, they're more likely to embrace what you say and change their minds. And once they've changed their minds, that's still not enough to get them to take action. And so resolving is that is that final uh, the final piece where we actually get them to take action. And and more specifically, resolving is about getting them to take that first step towards the change that you want them to do. Because um, I'm a big believer that continuing something is easy, but starting it is hard. And if you can make the start really easy for people, then uh, they'll continue to do it. So, um, yeah, this is the story habit. Um, it's called the story habit, how leaders shape stories that drive action. Uh, and I'll be publishing it in, in July this year. That's awesome. Sounds really interesting. So what are your other plans for the future other than releasing your new book? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, going through a massive transition at the moment because I've been in China for 15 years and it's time to move back to the UK now. Uh, so moving back to the UK is my uh, my plans for the uh, rest of this year, rest of 2022 and early 2023. Um, so yeah, that that's that's going to be taking up a lot of my time and attention over the coming months. Uh, and the story habit is also part of that plan to um, enter the UK and you know build a bit of awareness about what I do and a bit of credibility for a market where not many people know about me. Uh, and looking to meet more people um, back in the UK after being away for so many years. Uh, so if anyone's interested in um, in what I do or connecting, then uh, feel free to reach out. I'd love to connect. 
that's that's awesome jamie um we look forward to seeing you in the uk when you eventually arrive back so thank you very much for joining me today um if people want to connect to you or find out more about you how do they get in touch thank you um so two ways you can uh find me on linkedin uh, just look for jamie dixon uh, d-i-x-o-n and you'll see my face on an orange background or you can go to shapingpaths.com, uh, all one word, and you can learn a bit more about my book, How to Design and Deliver Practical Training. You can also download a free Story Habit story guide to learn a bit more about the, the Story Habit methodology in my upcoming book. So LinkedIn and shapingpaths.com. That's great, thank you very much. Um, and thank you again for joining us and we'll put those links in our show notes below. Thank you and thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Learning Reinvented podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can register to join the Learning Effect community. The link to do so is in the show notes below. If you've not already done so, please follow our podcast. And if the Learning Effect can help you and your organisation, please do get in touch. You can find both James and Katie on LinkedIn and our contact details are in the show notes below.